You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking with your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. We toss out the screaming heads and put people before political parties and give you context to the news to make you think. I'm Chris Spangle, and this is a special series on We Are Libertarians called The Swamp Explained. I'm joined by Rob Quartel, a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C. Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission. He's also been a candidate for Congress and Senate, and given his experience and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us a great insight into the swamp that makes our, up our nation's capital. So it is great to be back from vacation. Uh, I'm a I'm a little slow, Rob. It's good to see you and good to talk to you, and uh, glad that we can make this happen. Uh, how are things in your world out uh, near the swamp? You're not in the swamp, I don't I don't believe today. Well, I'm I'm not in the swamp today. I'm down on uh, Gwynn's Island. It's a gorgeous day. Uh, I think we're supposed to have a temperature of. Uh, an effective temperature of 110 degrees Ooh. and um uh the uh, the absolute temperature is around 99 but i'm also have a pool Good. and the bay uh and the pool is around 95 degrees <laughs> so <laughs> it's like a bathtub yeah it's been so, around 105 but, here it's been it's been rough this week and i was out in a cabin uh, in the woods. Fortunately, I had a- AC in the cabin because I don't really camp. Uh, but it was brutal. I I think that's part of why I'm just so sleepy today. I'm just very groggy, and this weather I think uh, yeah. just makes everybody a little slow. So hopefully, we won't be too slow on the program. I think I think uh, you know I don't like to talk a lot about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez because I don't want to have the Trump effect where. You are constantly outraged by a politician. You constantly talk about them. You make them your permanent foil, and then all of a sudden, that person gets elected president. And I would not like to see a president, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, but obviously she has been the center of a lot of news lately. Uh, she has, you know, she has. There have been per- certain points where she and Ted Cruz have been agreeing about certain things. Uh, she's been fighting with Donald Trump with her and her fellow quote unquote squad. Um, but you actually brought up something, uh, but when we were kind of planning this out long before all of the send her back to each, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying something that I always, that, that I personally agree with, which is getting rid of the Homeland Security Department. That's right. And uh, one of the things she pointed out was that when it was formed in the the, the uh, Bush Bush forty three administration, um, an awful lot of conservatives, and in fact probably the administration itself, were opposed to its formation because they worried about um, oversight, they worried about the size, they worried about uh, whether or not uh, you could um, deal with all the data that was uh, um, generated. Um, so they, she called it an egregious mistake, and an awful lot of people uh, on the Republican side and conservative side, and no doubt Libertarian side, uh, opposed it as well, uh, including uh, people like uh, uh, Vice President Cheney and and uh, and the president himself. But but here it is, and you know when it was uh, put together from all of the various agencies, customs and 
and uh, immigration enforcement and uh, Coast Guard and and uh, uh, some of the uh, security agencies and on and on and on. And of course, they created uh, the TSA out of that. Um, when they put it all together, it was a total of 180,000 employees, which made it uh, probably the second largest, second or third largest cabinet department. I'm guessing agriculture and DOD are bigger. Um, but today, it is almost a quarter million employees. Wow. So it's, uh, so uh, it's, she's, you know, she said her pro- proposal wasn't radical. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's not. So, so uh, let me let me ask you to clarify something. Bush and Cheney opposed the creation of Heart, Homeland Security, or I thought they spearheaded it. So, do I have? Well, my no. What happened wrong? was it came out of out of the Congress, and I think actually the Democrats were the first to propose that. You know, everybody's always looking for something to say that they they have uh, taken some action to do something. Um, and um, I, my recollection, it was actually Democrats who first proposed it. And, okay. But it came out of the Congress, came out of the Congress, and um, and the administration was very reluctant to do it. Uh, they proposed uh, putting together 22 government agencies, um, uh, one of which was the TSA, Transportation Security Administration, which, as you know, screens passengers at airports. That had been created uh, right after 9-11. And, uh, you know, a year later, we had that and 20, 21 other agencies and and it was proposed uh, out of the Congress that they put it together. So the administration was very reluctant to do that. Hmm. Um, and Cheney uh, was known to oppose it. Uh, when they voted for it, uh, my recollection is that uh, uh, it was something like a hundred and uh, I think some, it was a pretty large number of Republicans actually voted against setting up the new agency. Uh, so from, so, from this article uh, in the Washington, so she's on to something. Yeah, so in the Washington Post article that you sent on July 11th titled, Ocasio-Cortez wants to axe Homeland Security, some conservatives didn't want it to begin with. Uh, She's quoted as saying to the New Yorker's David Remnick, people sounded the alarm back then and that these agencies are extrajudicial, that they lack effective oversight and is baked into the core foundational structures of these agencies. You then have conservative political figures immediately castigated the congresswoman's proposal. Carl Rove said on Fox News, moronic, stupid, naive, and dumb. Uh, Liz Cheney said, absolutely yeah. irresponsible. Uh, and this is a, this is a uh, Ari Fleischer said, uh, creating a cabinet post doesn't solve the problem. He actually opposed it back in 2002, and they, they go on to talk about kind of what you just said. But this is, a, this is something that I've noticed about conservatives and one of their great failures as a movement is that they fight something when it's proposed, something like Medicare or Social Security or the creation of the Homeland Security Department, and then, you know, a generation or two later, they it, they support it. They it absolutely must be protected. We must uh, protect Medicare, Medicare, Social Security, the Homeland Security Department. They they never seem to actually want to decrease the size of government when it was enacted two or three generations ago, and they're. I think that's why a lot of people are very skeptical of the Republican Party is because ultimately they just end up supporting big government and protecting it. And it turns into a bit of tribalism like we're seeing here where just because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says it's an idea, we have to oppose this idea even if it would reduce the size of government because a Democrat said it. Well, and that's right. And and so there are two, two pieces. Let's break that down. 
because there's a lesson in it for our listeners. First, um, frequently when uh, things like this are proposed, they're proposed as, uh, as almost a panacea for a big problem. And of course, this was being proposed as a way of managing the security process, borders and everything else after 9-11. So you have that and, and it came out of the Congress, not the administration. So the instinct is to um, oppose uh, anything that comes from another branch or from another party. So right. that's that's the first instinct. Um, uh, and when it finally passes, and, and the article also notes that there were 120 some uh, congressmen who opposed it, of which about 10 or so were Republicans. But, um, but once it becomes a program, then there's a lot of money associated with it and <laughs> right. the committees. So you have this in the Congress, you have this whole restructuring of the committee process, although in fact, one of the problems for the leadership of the Homeland Security is that they have almost the entire uptime since that creation in 2002 or so, um, they have reported to the same committees that had oversight over those 22 different agencies, which ranged from immigration to security to uh, nuclear uh, proliferation and uh, control of nuclear weapons and uranium and and all of these things, all of which were, you know, pieces of which came into the department. And so that becomes, so th they may have opposed it for political reasons or tactical reasons or whatever, uh, but once it's there, they take advantage of the fact that it is there and it gets them new, um, new authority. So they have committees and get new oversight powers and new budget powers and authorities. And so all of a sudden they have a reason to live for this new agency. Right. And, and that is the swamp. And, and, uh, you know, AOC who uh, I, most of her things, I can't say I agree with any of them either. On the other hand, I love the fact that she is the one person who control and I mean the T R O double L troll the president. <laughs> um, effectively, she's really good at it. Uh, and I actually thought her comments uh, the other day uh, were right on. And we can talk about that, you know, when he went after her. But um, but, you know, she's on to something here. And I think the fears of conservatives were that you're creating this big agency that is involved in collecting all of this information. It's big brother. Um, and in fact, um, the very name, uh, the very name. Uh, sent tremors through some people in the administration too. Homeland, you know, the word yeah. homeland has all of these connotations of, um, uh, um, it, you know, the uh, uh, 1984 and all these kinds of, you know, framing things in that way. So they didn't like that. Most, a lot of people didn't like the name. I didn't like the name. I, I have to say too. Shortly um, after, I, I have to admit, I have to admit that I was involved in a part of helping structure the data side of it, which I regret. Really? You know, during, during that period, I had already come up with uh, and sort of sold in the idea of um, the uh, monitoring the border electronically with or the container security, monitoring containers coming into the U.S., using that data to figure out what might be in a container and whether or not it was risky and then going on to inspection. But so there are certain kinds of data elements that were already in the commercial and, and uh, government data collection process. So um, uh, a number of the people from the Senate committee writing the data collection provisions for the agency 
uh, got together with me several times, and you know, I ended up actually writing some of the language, which ended up in the bill. And in retrospect, it was just uh, too broad. Uh, but of course, everybody's trying to figure out what you can do at that point in time to make sure no more terrorists get into the U.S. and things like that. But uh, you know, all of us had second thoughts, and I know. Um, and here it is. You know, it's a huge agency. It collects um, uh, information on every aspect of American life um, on trade. And, you know, now we have um, uh, our, uh, you know, facial recognition, which is being enhanced by some of the things they do there at Homeland Security. You have um, uh, a whole variety of very 1984-ish kind of techniques, um, which all of a sudden are real life. They're not fiction anymore. And, and Homeland Security is the, the agency which um, handles 99% of that and, in fact, is the cause. Yeah, so, so I'm looking at— You should be concerned. I've, and I've been concerned about it for a long time. I mean, the first sign, so, so out of this came what's called a fusion center. And yeah. the fusion centers are part of the reason that 9-11 happened was that all these various policing agencies weren't talking to each other. So there's fusion centers around the country. There's one in the bottom of the state house here in Indiana— where the state police, the FBI, the you know the local police, they're they they all collect and, and process information so they don't miss things. And shortly after the formation of the Department of, of Homeland Security, there was a report. It got leaked, I think, in twenty two thousand eight or two thousand ten uh, from Missouri, where the Fusion Center said, you know, domestic terrorism is the largest threat, and anybody with a Ron Paul or Libertarian Party bumper sticker is to be considered uh, a national security threat. You know, and it was a terrifying moment where you go, what? You know, the per- a person who believes in the founding principles of this country, if you, if you are continually re- reposting the, the words of the founders or the Declaration of Independence was censored by Facebook a few years ago, you go, that, that's a domestic terrorist now? That's a really scary place to be in history. And when you look at what's happening with the social credit score in China... And the possibility of that, you know, yep. eventually happening here, totally. you you get you get your purchase of groceries at the store denied because you said you had a racist tweet in two thousand nine. Uh, that's a scary place to be heading, and this is this has always been the fear of civil libertarians of of any political persuasion that DHS would be largely ineffective except at cracking down on our rights and eventually harming Americans. So there's an article. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's an and, and Go so ahead. Sorry. There is an argument. And again, as uh, Slate pointed out, you know, uh, in their article at the time, um, uh, conservatives uh, um, and libertarians and Republicans um, were um, distrusted any government e- effort to protect Americans, quote, at the point of a gun and the touch of a rubber glove. And the second most common opinion was fear. And and I think there are good reasons for that. And of course, it's also incredibly bureaucratic. So you can argue it's not very efficient. But but again, this is the Homeland Security and the, and the arguments and conversations around it are a very good example of how the swamp works and uh, both how it um, from a tactical standpoint, how people get things done and uh, sort of reframe things until they do get it done. And then and then from the operating, operational standpoint, how inefficient and difficult things can be. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, you should be happy because um, there's so many committees doing oversight that nobody can get anything done. 
But on the other hand, if, if um, the policy guys at the top can't get anything done, then that means it's just running in kind of overdrive underneath. That's the what uh, you know Trump, uh, you know, also is fearful of, but doing nothing about, which is the fact that the bureaucrats in these agencies just run on on they're automated in a certain sort of sense so yeah so anyway. there, there and is this, this issue about abolishing ice ice is a part of of um of um, homeland security you know right. it's the immigration enforcement side so you have you know justin amash um saying on the one hand the house voted on it and named the resolution regarding ice um uh, he says he wouldn't abolish ice without an alternative but there's no reason to uh, treat a federal agency as though it's beyond reproach and reform and then, um, he, you know, he points out uh, that um, they, um, they're defending an agency as if it were something sacred, and it really has only existed since 19, uh, 2003. Right. So, it's, uh, you know. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's, anyway. the, that's the Republican Democrat so, so way. AOC, AOC, AOC is on to something. We should not diss her all the time. Uh, so this is a report from uh, ZDNet in 2015, and this kind of summarizes a report, an oversight report by the Department of Homeland Security on itself. And the headline is, Department of, uh, Department of Homeland Security Oversight Report, DHS is a Terrifying Failure. Analysis, a report assessing the DHS since its formation in 2002 finds mission-critical failures across all five of the DHS sectors and struggles to prove the DHS is effective. And so if you go back and look at that, you know, one one key finding the article notes, the DHS spent 50 billion over the past 11 years on counterterrorism programs, including homeland security grants and other anti-terror initiatives. But the department cannot demonstrate if the nation is more secure as a result. Of course, admitting that that the nation is more secure means that they lose their funding because all right, well we're secure, why why give you uh, any money? <laughs> well, well, you could argue, though, and I think they would be correct to argue that um, if, if they're doing something via their monitoring or other tactical kinds of things or strategic initiatives that reduce the likelihood of it, then you need to continue that. And so I, they, I think it would be legitimate to argue that if they stop certain things, we would be more vulnerable. But again, it's um, we're giving up an awful lot. And people actually don't know how much they're being monitored. And, and uh, you know, anytime, uh, you know, I, I, I think I go back, for example, to the, um, to the, to the Boston uh, bomber, if you remember at the marathon several years ago. Yeah. The, the police found the guy, the kids, the young, the young men, in uh, I think it was two days. Mm-hmm. And they did it by virtue of uh, being able to track them through dozens of cameras along the route and other places and information that was generated and put together, you know, in a way that is exactly what Homeland Security does and their agencies when they're trying to do this stuff. And, uh, you know, I think most people, everybody applauded that they caught them, but I don't think very many people thought about the fact that they caught them because everybody is under surveillance. Well, there's All a TV. The yeah, there's a TV show. And, and called, that's a problem. Yeah, there's a TV show called Person of Interest that kind of it's a true story, basically about the network and predictability of human behavior, and uh, it shows the kind of the net that is around American society. It's a very good TV show with Jim Caviezel. Um, but that that there used to be a saying back when I was a baby in politics, and you were uh, already a seasoned <laughs> veteran. 
that it's for the children, and that was the justification for anything that the government ever did. And now the justification to do whatever the government wants to do is to say, well, it's in the interest of national security, so therefore we're going to do what we want, spend what we want, and not tell you about it so we can't be held accountable. Right. And that that's a, an enormous problem. And so uh, to, to continue on with this article here, each assessment of the DHS five top missions, preventing terrorism and improving security, security, securing and managing our borders, enforcing and administering our immigration laws, safeguarding and securing cyberspace and strengthening national preparedness and resilience, is a shocking litany of failures and incompetence, corruption and disinterest characterizing the DHS as an ineffective and inefficient program of questionable worth. Um, the report says the DHS is, quote, lousy at cybersecurity and stresses the DHS as a, quote, dysfunctional culture, end quote. Um, and one outlined especially in an ominous section on DHS corruption. Uh, it details misspent and wasted money on spa junkets, 99% of chemical facilities uninspected, a range of cybersecurity failings, and a nation protected by largely untrained government contractors who literally don't know what to do if someone leaves a bomb outside a federal building or pulls out a gun and starts shooting. The DHS <laughs> spends more than $700 million annually to lead the federal government's aged efforts on cybersecurity, but struggles to protect itself and cannot protect federal and civilian networks from the most si- serious cyber attacks. So, uh, yeah, the- and I, you know, I should point out on that point. Well, there are a couple of things embedded in that. Um, on the cyber thing, by the way, I, I think it's probably worth, you know, I, I have had my, um, my, my clearance stolen twice from oh. the Office of Personnel Management, which is a government agency. It's not under DHS, but, you know, DHS is supposed to be um, creating standards and driving and, and leading in this category here. Um, a lot of these things, though, I think part of the problem and that litany of things that he rattled off there um, is that they actually have too many tasks to handle, um, and you, you really can't handle all of these things. Yeah. So, so one wonders if you had 22 agencies rather than one gigantic one with all the management problems that come with size alone, um, would they be any better at doing it? Um, you, you can't know, but for example, um, the fusion centers, which you talked about, um, those, uh, you know, I would, I would push back on whether those are good or bad or indifferent. I actually, I think in concept, they are the right thing to be thinking about. Um, there's a, you know, in this period, early period, uh, people did not have a good uh, ability to see what was going on in the environment around them. So, and put the pieces together. And of course, that's why they wanted to build an agency in the first place. So for example, um, you, you might be, you might get data um, from uh, the border guys that something is happening here as an incident, but um, they would not have been able to connect it to um, data out of another agency that was watching specific people for some other purpose um, that was, you know, they were nefarious um, operatives or something else. So, so this issue of being able to connect data um, in, in that's what the fusion centers were about. It was a way, it was intended to be a way for um, the local police, firemen, uh, all of these uh, first responders, as they now call them that they didn't use to call them that either. Um, to get to, to get information and coordinate it, you know. So wh- when 9/11 happened and everybody was, was responding to the towers, 
you had uh, everyone on different frequencies for the radios. So the police and the fire and, and other kinds of uh, responder units really couldn't talk to each other all the time. Uh, some, some of the frequencies overlapped or were the same. They could, they could uh, uh, communicate directly, but uh, this is what the fusion center concept was, which is get everybody on the same page. Well, and, literally, and, literally, yeah, and they also you can also now, trace back the the nine eleven attacks to the CIA not sharing information with the FBI because of pissing matches. I absolutely, mean, you know they they right. wanted you know, and that that part that was part of the the goal of this organization was to help alleviate a lot of that. The Department of uh, you know the national not the National Security Advisor, but the Dan Coates currently occupies that office where he's the head of intelligence and right. coordinates a lot of that. I think that office may have been created after 9/11, but I, I don't know for sure. But that was part of uh, that was part of the goal was to to make sure that those kind of failures don't happen anymore. Well, and there was actually an article um, uh, I can't recall. It was the Times, or I think it was the New York Times, this week, a couple of days ago, a, a totally different subject, but which illustrates the same problem, which is. Um, you know, we're celebrating as we do this um, broadcast uh, the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. I was watching uh, the right stuff before we started the program. <laughs> good. Uh, and um, and one of the articles was about the, the weather. So I was actually uh, in college. I was a midshipman on the USS Carrier Wasp at the time. Um, we yes. uh, I watched it go up from the officers club in Newport, Rhode Island. Hmm. And then they flew us, um, the midshipmen over to, uh, Rotterdam where we picked up, uh, the aircraft carrier, which was the, the flag carrier for the whole fleet there. And we sailed to Oslo for a couple of days. And then we sailed off to, uh, the middle of the North Atlantic. And our ship was, uh, the alt- alternate pickup uh, vessel uh, had they not landed in the, the right spot. Um, and so I was very interested in this, and we, it did land pretty close. It landed about 250 miles off of the original landing spot. And the reason uh, was because the meteorologists figured out there was going to be a major storm in the originally planned landing spot. But but the story, and it's a, a great example of government agencies not sharing, was that um, that – uh, the media, the there was a spy satellite uh, that was up there, and the military didn't want anybody to know it was up there, and they didn't want people to know it was taking pictures, and they didn't want it to want them to know it was, they didn't want it to take pictures of clouds. Um, but um, uh, a guy there, uh, looking at the information, realized that um, he was seeing a major storm develop in the uh, pickup area. And um, and he contact he, he what he wanted to do was contact the NASA meteorologists who would not have this data, but he could not contact them and tell them he had it because no one was supposed to know the satellite was up there collecting the data in the first place. Huh. And um, and uh, it turns out that fortuitously he ran into the a senior guy, uh, I think with NASA. I, I don't have all the details, but. Uh, but it was a great story, and you can look it up and, okay. and straighten it out. But um, uh, who, who happened to know about the satellite too? He, I guess, he'd been in the Defense Department when it went up or something. But so he could. They had to check to see whether he could get the data uh, and information about the 
storm. And they basically, um, he, um, he commanded the pickup uh, vessels to move, to begin moving to the new um, pickup location 250 miles away and to get it in motion before they had cleared it with NASA um, and before NASA had gotten the information that they were not supposed to have. So it's, you know, it's a great example of everything in government is compartmentalized in the security side. And of course, that's what a lot of people who supported the formation of the department wanted uh, to get over. Because as you know, and as the report, the, the follow-on reports to 9-11 said, it was a massive, massive lack of handoff and insight and ability to scrutinize people and information coming in uh, to actually prevent um, the event from ever happening. And, um, you know, there are people who believe you could have prevented it. I I suspect most people believe you could have prevented it. But all these things come at tremendous cost. You know, Benjamin Franklin is said to have uh, said that liberty uh, once surrendered are never freely returned. Right. And and I think that's uh, probably correct. And every day we um, we surrender something. And of course, I think um, the the uh, facial recognition um, is the scariest part of everything. You know, I uh, you know virtually everywhere you go, your face is being recognized compared to the databases. And now we find that that uh, that uh, uh, the FBI and others have uh, millions and millions, two hundred million, I think, records of, of drivers and. Um, this, their faces and uh it's it's of course it's I, I i just got my passport and as uh the the, <laughs> the the photo that she took was a little askew and so she modified the photo to kind of match up with all the lines and i'm sitting there looking at how she's matching it up in the in the passport database and it's you know it's measurements and here's where the eyes and here move this point yeah. to the cheek here and like I mean, we're building a digital panopticon, and we have to be really careful about it, and nobody seems to be terribly worried. The panopticon was uh, a prison where basically there was, uh, it was in a big circle, and you had the cells, and and the prisoners all faced each other. And then there was a tunnel and, and like a way to kind of look down on the prisoner. And so the prisoners all went insane, clinically insane, because they never knew when somebody was watching or not. They were constant. They never had any moment of privacy. I mean, there's you know, even the most extroverted amongst us, like myself, need that afternoon where you're just alone and not talking to someone and not watched. And, you know, I mean, there's. <laughs> the, the the reality but, that we're constantly being monitored is uh, it's a scary proposition for the future and and far be it from me to um, I've always been an early adopter of technology as I know you are but at what yep. point do we start to become the Luddites and start going in and smashing the machines uh, to to impede progress I don't I don't know I think I wonder if we'll get to that point or if all these dystopian futures like Terminator are going to eventually come true. Yep, that's absolutely. Well, we we move there a little bit every day. Mm-hmm. So, um so you mentioned anyway. you mentioned but, the, but again, so, yeah, go ahead, finish. And then I'll move on. Again, my 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 big point is that um that this this in, issue of information sharing and and uh, analysis and everything else it's not just of course a homeland security issue it's a 
it, it's it's been with us a long time, and the the issue is, you know, where does it begin and where does it end? Yeah. So. So you mentioned uh, AOC's gift at trolling, and I believe that everybody is smart at something. And even if someone is a particularly not bright person, they may be good at something. And I think that AOC and Trump share the same genius. Uh, I don't feel that Trump or AOC are particularly bright people as in terms of book learning uh, or uh, intellectual firepower, but... They have a singular gift in trolling their opposition and getting media attention for themselves. Uh, I think that uh, so. There's been a recent spat where Donald Trump basically said, along the lines, I mean, sure, anybody listening to this program seen the tweets, but along the lines of these these four: Ilan Omar, uh, Presley, AOC, and the other one. <laughs> I forget what what I'm not sure of the yeah. the other yeah. member of the quote squad's name is. Uh, that they hate America and that they need to go back to their country of origin. The problem is that only Ilan Omar was born in Somalia and, and is a naturalized American citizen. And so you had the president of the United States effectively saying, if you disagree with me, then you should be deported to four American citizens. And the veiled, the, uh, I mean, I don't know about you. I I won't force you to associate with my belief, but I do think that there is... Uh, a xenophobic racist element to it that if you disagree with my version of America, which is inherently white, and th- then you need to be shipped back to your home country. I, I just, to me, it's undeniably racial. Uh, I don't know if Donald Trump is a racist or not, but Donald Trump is certainly very comfortable, if not intentionally, uses raci- racist language. Uh, and I think that this this particular incident was was planned i think that he is smart enough to know that he has the four people who are less like less than he is in america ilan omar according to axios has a nine percent approval rating and he wants them to be the face of the democratic party in 2020 and he knows that if he just if he elevates them then it helps his re-election chances because then he can say do you want them to be in charge of the country and scare those moderates into voting for him, independents and moderate Republicans, in 2020. But he knows he's not going to get coverage if he doesn't do something. If he he doesn't do something crazy, so he he used something that was it. I mean, I have heard "Love It or Leave It" from 2004 on, working in talk radio. I mean, it's it's nothing that is going to piss well, off so his let, base. Let me let me let me let me send you in a little bit different direction. Okay. So so I. Uh, was a teenager uh, in the 1960s, and I was um, draft bait when I got out of high school in 1968 at the height of Vietnam. So for people my age, the first reaction is Vietnam, because that was what the people who defended our involvement there said, if you opposed it, love it or leave it. Right. Same with Iraq. And when I it was, was a teen. Uh, yeah, but that but it, the first, the really, you know, for all of us out there and, and many voters, you know, the biggest chunk of voters who actually vote, which is um, uh, baby boomers, love it or leave it, has a very different meaning and than um, it does now for uh, the, the, the squad. Um, so, although, and I, I certainly understand what they're saying, and I certainly agree with them. I do think it's divide his. Um, I don't know if he actually thinks so hard about 
what um, the implications are of what he says. Of course, you know, there's a kind of when he when he says something like this or tweets it um, and the left gets riled up, uh, the, his base basically views it as there they go again, not he, there he goes again, right. there they go again. And um, so, um, you know, he's he's trolling. He's trolling the Democrats and people. And of course, people say, well, he actually united Democrats, got uh, Pelosi out of a bit of a bind, you know, because earlier um, Pelosi had uh, and and the four young women had all kind of been in a spat where they were, the, as she said, the only votes. There are only four votes um, uh, against a piece of legislation that they were trying to get through. Uh, and um, so he in a way, he sort of united them all. But. But he, at the same time, he is definitely wild as base. And, of course, the Democrats, and, again, this is the swamp where people um, um, are almost incapable of acting independently um, from whatever their, their brain tells them. Their, their knee jerk is, to, is what always prevails, their gut. And um, the gut for the Democrats was to jump on it and define it as racial. And it, I think it, it, it visually is racial. Uh, and racist, and I, but I, I don't know if he actually thought that far along. I think uh, he, and of course now the papers report that, um, and I know it's true that um, you know everybody in the White House on the staff, of course they were all very concerned. They could immediately see the effect it would have, um, and jumped on reframing it. And the reframing now is that he's not really talking about um, them; he's talking about their views which are un-American and uh, they don't love America and blah, blah, blah. And of course, again, for my generation, uh, anyone who was around during Vietnam, that's exactly the way um, the opponents of the war were framed. And most of them were young. Most of them were college students um, and just out of college and everything else. You know, the protests were driven uh, out of the colleges. The the, the, the deaths, uh, you know, some of those were in, in colleges uh, on campuses. Of course, the deaths were actually in Vietnam, but but people who died during protests were uh, at colleges, universities. And so we react um, in a negative way, too. Uh, you know, it almost doesn't matter what side you were on uh, during Vietnam. When you hear love it or leave it, that is kind of one nasty leftover um, epithet from uh, the 1960s and early 70s. Well, I can know. tell you, having been in college in the early 2000s, in the lead up to the Iraq War, I mean, that was the anybody on the left basically was told if you don't agree with going to Iraq, then then you need to go back, to, you need to go somewhere else. <clears throat> but the idea that they they should go back to their home countries, what he actually said, you know, we we're kind of transposing love it or leave it in that mentality. But I mean, he's basically saying to four. Yeah women of color go back to your home country you don't belong here and the idea of what that, that they're un-american i mean i'm I, far be it for me to defend these four because i have nothing in common in terms of my ideology with theirs and i think that their tactics are as grotesque as his but that the idea of they're un-american is completely subjective my version of americanism is different than donald trump's is different than yeah. ilan omar's i mean they're the if Donald Trump or if Barack Obama had stood up in front of a crowd and said Dinesh D'Souza is un-American and we need to send him back, 
the right would have lost their mind as they did when Barack Obama used the IRS to persecute right. them. You know, it, it is, it is, it, it, it's just, it's all grotesque, and it, it's clearly. He knows Donald and Trump. I, used to it. I, I I believe that Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing. I, I don't think that he's a dumb man. I don't think you become president of the United States be, being an idiot. I always thought that about Bush. Uh, I think that that's just the easy explanation <laughs> that Donald Trump is an idiot and therefore he he's absolved of what he's doing. And I don't believe that. I think Donald Trump knows that every American has made up their mind as to whether Donald Trump is a racist or not. And so he can traffic in this language because he's not really held accountable by the Democrats, the Republicans, or the media. You know, the Democrats flail with outrage. The media flails with outrage. But the media is cashing all of those checks from advertisers because of all the press that he gets them. He knows he's going to get whatever coverage, whatever he says is going to be on the front page of the news. And and he knows that if he and if his you, solid base is growing, it's forty five point five percent. He the Republicans and, uh, uh, and it's uh, in all the right states. And he's he right now he's on a path he's on a glide path to be reelected. Yeah, because the Democrats didn't learn their lesson as we talked about. I think in the last episode, right. the the idea that you and he really knows that his model works for Omar and AOC. Now the difference is Donald yeah. Trump does have some ability to keep his mouth shut. You saw that during the Kavanaugh hearings. He was nowhere. Right. And that's right. AOC and Ilan Omar don't have that ability. They say that <laughs> Omar gets up there and immediately just says everything wrong that most of America will immediately go this woman is insane and a radical and he wants them he knows that the the there the Democrats that he's going to run against are inherently kind of weak and and are playing the game and pretending that the presidency is some highfalutin office. But he knows that AOC and Omar, as the faces of the Democrats from here on out, only benefit him. And well, I, I, would and I say think he wants AOC, to fight them. Yeah, and I, I, but he's fighting them now. He's turned that from his racism or what Democrats like to frame as a racist statement. And I, I think it is. Effectively, it is. Uh, intentionally or not, and I, I don't know if he intended it to be that way, but it is that way, and I suspect he is himself that way. But um, a- AOC and Omar are, um, I think they're both intelligent. Um, I-, I think you, you have to wonder how well informed they are. Uh, AOC has been very effective in um, the committee hearings in which I have seen her in her questioning. She really is, she does get to the heart of that. And she's obviously a very smart person. Um, smart is not always completely educated. And of course, you know, and Trump may be smart, but we know he didn't know how government worked. Um, but the two AOC versus Omar, uh, AOC, I think is, she, she has been more um, careful and um, thoughtful uh, about what she says in her own position. I, I recall early on after, I find it bizarre. I'm defending her, but I'm, I'm not defending. I, her me positions. too. I know. I'm not, I'm not so, defending her position. I'm mad that I have to defend Elon Omar's right to free speech, but that's what <laughs> yeah, you right. just got to do. But, yeah, but but um, and they do have that right, and they one has to assume that they represent their districts. So that means they represent. Uh, oh, by the way, voting American citizens. So that that's why you have to be respectful of all these people and. And and that's one of the one of the worst aspects of the of life as it is today, uh, which is that um, 
people are really very disrespectful of other people's um, uh, differences. And uh, now, of course, what this really resembles most of all is back in the the uh, the uh, 18th century political press and yeah. uh, late 17th century political press, where the, the you know newspapers originally were organs of one political point of view or another, and only um, in the 1820s or 30s did a newspaper finally come around that that at least pretended not to have an ideological point of view. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's an issue of, of respecting the people who elect the representatives. And, um, you know, the next election will be a test. Omar and, and AOC will be back out there again in front of their constituents. And, and if they win, then that is and uh, ought to be taken as a serious reminder that there are Americans all across the political divide. And um, now, on the other hand, I, I think that if you did a bell curve on every issue, every issue, you would find that 80% um, of Americans are within plus or minus five points of some center point on almost every single issue. And, and this is where I think the Democrats are getting themselves in trouble. Um, you will not find that level of agreement on um, uh, reparations, for example, you will not find that level of agreement on single-payer health care. Um, you actually find an immense amount of agreement around the middle, plus or minus five or ten, on immigration solutions when you get to specific ones and polling on that. Um, but, you know, we're letting, uh, and, and what Trump's trying to do in the Republican Party now, and I saw Karl Rove had a piece too, is uh, we're, we want the extremes in both parties to define the parties, and they don't. And, and the problem with what Trump has done is that he has turned this into the Trump party. Not he, It's no longer a Republican party or a conservative party or any of that. It's really, as much as anything, movie star worship. Right. Well, which means you can't, you can't have a conversation about it. And, and oh, by the way, when, when uh, you know, the four women got up uh, last week and talked about it. I again, I think AOC's framing of it was correct, which is that uh, the, the president cannot argue the content of any of his programs um, or policies, largely because he doesn't have any. But right. if he had one, he couldn't argue it. So he goes after uh, the person and people and makes it a personal kind of um, statement. And that's, I think, I think she is correct. And I think. The way she said that, um, uh, you know, gives me a little more respect for her intelligence because I think she was trying to to not let them frame it in personal terms any longer. Um, well, they're gonna he, have to work go, pretty hard at that. Yeah, go watch Network. It's on Netflix right now, and and yeah. there's the the scene where the young blonde comes into the craggy old uh, news director's office and basically says, you know. Uh, she's really the driving, she's the entertainment person for, for the UBS network. And she's like, you know, I, I've already seen your newscast. It's all, it, it's all basically fluff anyways. Let me put Howard Beale on the air screaming, you know, BS and we'll, we'll have a rating sensation. And that's what happens because at the end of the day, we really want our ears tickled. We want to see the train wreck. Yeah. We want to watch the drama. Donald Trump and AOC give us what we want. And so, therefore, we give the ratings to the news outlets 
And CNN just goes, okay, we'll give you exactly what you want. I mean, people don't want... You know how many people look at our episode links and go, uh, you know, I really do want to understand this issue in in full detail, but I don't want to take two hours to understand it. You go, okay, well, then you're more susceptible to being propagandized and, you know, misdirected and disinformed because you don't want to do the homework. You want the sensationalism. You want to argue whether or not Donald Trump and AOC are racist and that. You know, we're we're really kind of living in in a period of time where people are abdicating their responsibility. Congress is abdicating their responsibility, and we're. I mean, the voters are really at this point the only one that can hold Trump accountable, and I don't know that they're going to because I don't know that they're they're ever going to want to go back to a presidency that's stayed and solid and you know respects the you know in some respects I do like Donald Trump as president because he's completely eroded the myth of the presidency yeah. and deleveraged right. people's notions of that being an imperial office I think you know in some ways he's he's peak demagogue for this country and that's bad but in other ways he's deleveraged the power of the office and the just the mythos around it you know that, that well but but that is uh, you know his, his attack on people um I, I think the for me the um Probably the worst part of the last several days was when he was on the White House lawn, I think yesterday or maybe Friday, and um, he said that um, people can't criticize America, not when I'm president. Right. And, of course, that really, really, really reminded me of the 1960s and early 70s in Vietnam. Um, And, you know, that's uh, for me and I think anyone who's uh, thinking person of whatever stripe, you really want to be able to be critical, self-assess, um, and it doesn't mean you love the country any less. Um, so, you know, it's it's tough. Now, all of this, of course, you know, this is all leading to the campaign. And, right. And, you know, and, and, and your viewer, your listeners, our listeners might say, sir, what does this have to do with the swamp? Well, you know, the swamp is all about power. And, uh, and frankly, the swamp is about a lot of inside jokes and and pretensions of, uh, uh, of value and all the rest of this. So um, where, you know, Trump is, is uh, uh, you know, he's he, you, you said that, for example, he's not uh, he's demyth the uh, imperial presidency. I think in some ways he's sort of turning it into the imperial presidency by saying no one to do it on my watch. Right. Kind of thing. Um, but he has demystified some aspects of it. And, you know, I, I think some of it went too far. So you may recall that I, I don't think uh, I think Ronald Reagan and George Bush and George Bush the uh, second none of them would ever walk in the Oval Office without a uh, a tie on and their their suit jacket buttoned and uh, in honor of the office. Well, you know I I think I get that, but that's just if it's your office. Uh, you ought to be able to put your feet up on your desk. I as as the guy that would wear <laughs> as the guy that would wear cargo shorts into the Oval Office out of disrespect, I I, I I'm a fan of it. Right. Uh, so, yeah. did you ever think that you'd see a day where San Francisco liberal Nancy Pelosi, as Rush calls her, would become the moderate wing of the of the Democratic <laughs> Party? That is, it is amazing, isn't it? And but I do think she's demonstrating, and this is where I, I've never much cared for her. Uh, as a politician, but you know, I think in this the last this year she has come into her own. Um, beginning with, uh, you know, everyone may recall the spat over the State of the Union when uh, he uh, Trump uh, she she disinvited the president, 
And of course, she had the right to do it. And and he sputtered. Uh, and but in the end, he really had to uh, bow to her on that. And uh, he got to do it eventually, but it was on her terms. And she has done that repeatedly. Um, and you can walk all the way back to the uh, Oval Office meeting where uh, he turns around to her before the new Congress and says, well, something like, well, Nancy, you know, uh, you can't do anything, you know, yet you just don't have enough power or something like that. And she said, well, let me instruct you on how power is structured in the, <laughs> here in Washington, Mr. President, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and he has been a naive at, at that. And a lot of the people he brought with him were naive and, and still are to this day about how these things work. Now, if, if you want to break things, um, and, you know, I'm in technology and startups and all those things in my real life, um, I'm perfectly happy to see things being disrupted. And I have to believe you probably are too, and a lot of our listeners are, even though they may be conservative at this stage, we, you know, there are a few things that do need disruption in the political structure. And yeah. um, so he, he has done that, but one would hope that there would be uh, a new technology or a new app or new something out of this administration that would uh, address the problem that they're d disrupting. So, but know, you know, man. all of this is in search of winning in 2020. And, and, you know, there've been a, a spate of um, articles and, and uh, talking heads on the TV uh, and the radio talking about um, how each side is sort of hoping it's going to help or hinder the other. But, you know, I thought one of the uh, most interesting in the last couple of days was um, one in the Times, which says Trump's electoral college edge could grow in 2020, rewarding polarizing campaign. And what it, it points to is that um, today and certainly into 2020, um, the mostly white working class Rust Belt states, which decided the 2016 election, continue to be the core of the electoral map um, uh, and the electoral college. And and um, while his ratings are generally higher down in uh, Sunbelt, you know, Florida and Texas and all that, um, they are very high in the Rust Belt. And so, for example, you go to Minnesota, um, uh, where uh, Wisconsin, rather, uh, which was a surprise to some, uh, although I predicted it would go uh, for Trump. Uh, his approval rating is actually higher now um, in the net uh, than it was in 2016. He's at 47.1% in Wisconsin, which is higher than his national averages. So you, you take this state by state by state, um, uh, and he has a clear advantage in the Electoral College. Um, uh, and, you know, there was another article that, that made the analysis that he could lose this time, not by three million, but by five million and still win via the Electoral College. Uh, and I think that's something that that people need to be concerned about. And the Democratic Party needs to be concerned about it. And I think, frankly, it um, if you're thinking, again, as a, someone from Washington looking out, um, do they need someone from California on their ticket? No, they don't need 3 million extra votes there. They need 30,000 extra votes in, in five other states to win the Electoral College. So um, to me, that suggests that the Democrats are going to have to uh, bring in uh, somewhere on that ticket 
someone from the Midwest, if not to someone's, you know, and of course, Joe Biden um, uh, is from Pennsylvania, which they really need. And uh, even though he's from Delaware, Pennsylvania claims him. Well, he, he, he was from Pennsylvania, but elected for so many years in Delaware, he moved there. Uh, but Pennsylvania still claims him. And, um, you know, you've got Buttigieg and uh, 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 Amy, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Klobuchar. One of the, Klobuchar, yeah. And uh, some of these others from the Midwest. And I think... Um, we need to watch those people because uh, if the Democrats want to win, um, that's that's where they're going to have to go for votes. All right. Well, let's wrap up. Let's uh, do the Diner's Guide to D.C. Uh, Rob loves to go out oh, yeah. and carouse. And, <laughs> and, uh, well, and actually, you know, I, as we've told, told our viewers, listeners, that, uh, you know, I moved from Logan Circle down to my house in Chesapeake, but then got a little pied-a-terre in the, the Navy Yard, which is – now, up and coming, um, and there are lots of interesting restaurants down there, but there's a new one. Uh, if you would like, there's so many great restaurants now on the water in Washington, and so many more than there used to be. There's a salt line down near the, the stadium, and All Purpose, which is great pizza, and, and uh, Italian, and others, and uh, Whaley's, and so on and so forth. Um, but the, the newest one is called uh, Schilling's. Can it, cannery and canning shillings canning and it is uh just a block off the water looking across an open space to it that's a, a young chef the family used to can uh, be a canning company and he's from baltimore and um we had uh, fabulous soft shell crab and and uh, a number of just terrific dishes and it, it's uh, both meat and vegetarian and uh, vegan and um, seafood. And he does a great job. And I think this restaurant, Schilling Canning Company, is going to be a big hit. And if you're going to Washington, you should make every effort to go do that and then spend the evening wandering around uh, looking at the boats and uh, and uh, fountains and walking the bridges there on the waterfront in Washington. All right. Very good. Well, it's been great to talk to you. This has been a very good episode of The Swamp. Make sure you go back and listen to all of the episodes. Just search in the feed Swamp and you'll find all of our previous episodes. Uh, I, I especially love the episode where Rob talks about his experience with Bush 41. It's a great episode. So uh, always look forward to doing these. We, we were trying to uh, we're trying to do them every two weeks, Rob, but we we typically get once a month but that, that's <laughs> once a month yeah we, we'll get better we're, we're two busy men and so it's hard to link up sometimes mm-hmm. but uh, always enjoy talking with you rob and i appreciate you right. uh sharing your insight with the audience yep and i enjoy it too thanks so much Bye-bye. thank you